Hello, Lakers. Welcome to A Splash of Murder. I'm Heather, and I'll be your guide today on a lake with some eerie history. We're not here for the views of the water. We're here for what lies beneath. So strap on your life jackets and get ready to climb aboard. For over 170 years, Greenwood Lake has been a popular vacation destination, a favorite getaway for celebrities such as Babe Ruth, and the location of movies such as Magic of Bell Island starring Morgan Freeman. The incredible seven miles of scenic lake attracts boaters, swimmers, fishermen, and according to history, even murderers. Today I'm taking you back in time to the early 1900s. Innovations, such as railroads and gas-powered cars, sparked changes in lifestyles across the U.S. People began to travel and vacation more often. The standards of living had greatly increased with the inventions of air conditioners, radios, and vacuums, things we often take for granted today. Before the flappers and bob cuts of the Roaring Twenties, women often dressed modestly in the early 1900s, some still wearing corsets and dresses that covered the entire body. Even swimsuits were modest. Looking at pictures today, you may have a hard time realizing that the gown-styled outfit, including stockings, was actually a bathing suit. We can only imagine that on July 16th of 1912, Rosa Zabo was wearing a very similar bathing suit the day she would die. Rosa Zabo, also known as Rosalina Zabo, Rosalia Ritter, and the Countess came to America from Austria to marry Villa Zabo, the former Austrian cavalry officer. Rosa was the third oldest of her five brothers and three sisters. She was known as the Countess due to her husband's title Ritter, which means knight. Her family back in Austria would often talk about how they wondered how she and her husband were doing in America. Unfortunately, Villa Zabo would die in 1904, and Rosa would follow him only eight years later. Burton W. Gibson, a Yale graduate and lawyer, was born December 13th of 1874 to Joseph Wilkes Gibson and Emily Aletta Gibson. In 1898, Gibson married Maud Isabel O'Dwyer in New Haven, Connecticut. They went on to have two daughters together, Maria and Marion Gibson. July 16th of 1912 was a beautiful day to be out on the lake, which is probably why a day of boating was a plan for Burton Gibson and Rosa Zabo. Gibson was Rosa's attorney for several years 
and it has been speculated possibly a little more than that. According to Gibson, during their boat ride, Rosa had decided to switch seats. In doing so, they both ended up falling into the water. Fortunately, people on the shore were able to see the commotion, and a boat was sent to rescue them. Gibson was recovered safely from the water. However, Rosa could not be seen from the surface, and two days later, a fisherman would find her body. Gibson was beyond himself with worry and explained over and over that it was an accident, which appeared to be convincing to the police. However, these same people who had witnessed the commotion in the water had also witnessed what happened before they fell. According to those statements given by witnesses that day, both Rosa and Gibson were seen struggling on the boat. At one point, Gibson had wrapped his arms around Rosa's neck, throttling her, and it is at this point they fell into the water. But despite the witness's account of what happened to Rosa, her death was ruled an accident. In a strange coincidence, Rosa happened to be the third of Gibson's clients to tragically die or disappear in only a matter of six years. Even stranger, Gibson was able to have Rosa buried immediately in an unmarked grave under the name Rosalina Ritter. Just as we see in many cases, money can be an incredible motive for the unthinkable, and it was money that started to cause the suspicion of authorities. Specifically, when Gibson went to the bank to withdraw Rosa's estate of $10,000. Several months before Rosa's untimely death, Gibson had drawn up a new will for her. Rosa was said to be illiterate, so it is very possible that she signed documents without knowing what she was signing. As well, Gibson produced a waiver at the bank authorizing him to withdraw her estate, signed by Rosa's mother. Interestingly, however, Rosa's mother had died in Austria two years before she had supposedly signed this document for Gibson. This new information sparked a new interest in the case, and authorities started digging, literally. Rosa's body was exhumed, and doctors determined there was no fluid in her lungs at the time of her death. They found damage to her neck, and specifically damage to her hyoid bone. Hyoid bones are very fragile, and are often found damaged when a person is strangled. The physicians reported that Rosa's larynx had been so crushed and pushed so far up her throat that it would have kept water from entering her lungs. It was determined that Rosa's cause of death was strangulation. Gibson was arrested for the murder and went to trial. This trial turned out to be quite the spectacle. Mobs of people came to catch a glimpse of Gibson and hear the newest details of the case. Gibson's defense claimed that there was a huge mistake in identity and that the woman who they claimed drowned in the lake, was actually a Mrs. Rosalina Ritter, and not Rosa Zabo. In the medical legal journal, written by Dr. Clark Bell, titled Animal Witnesses, he writes about how a parrot formerly owned by Rosa was used as proof of identifying Rosa Zabo as a woman killed in the lake. The parrot would repeat Rosa, O Rosa, and Villa, Villa, which was Rosa's husband's name. The parrot, which was taken in by a family friend, had been observed by investigators and believed proof enough that Gibson's story of Rosalina Ritter was a lie, that the woman found dead in Greenwood Lake was without doubt Rosa Zabo. 
The first trial in Goshen, New York, ended in a hung jury. The second trial in Newburgh, New York, prosecutors decided to change their tactics and planned to take the jury to stand on the shore of Greenwood Lake to watch a rehearsal of the woman's death. This second trial, however, would also end in a hung jury, with an 11-1 to 1 in favor to convict Gibson of first-degree murder, which meant Gibson would walk. Both juries failed to render a verdict. Eventually, Gibson was found guilty of a lesser charge of first-degree grand larceny for stealing $7,000 from Rosa's estate and was sentenced to 5-10 to 10 years in Sing Sing, which he only served a few years bouncing between Sing Sing and Auburn State Prison. And shockingly, in 1919, he received a pardon. While in Sing Sing, Gibson was disbarred. This hardly seems like justice, and unsurprisingly, given Gibson's history, it did not stop him from giving legal advice to his fellow inmates. Gibson was suspected in the possible murders of at least seven people. He was arrested in suspicion of a couple of them, however, was never charged. Rosa Zabo's death caught the attention of newspapers and the morbid curiosity of thousands. The woman killed on Greenwood Lake made headlines for months. However, the unfortunate clients of Burton W. Gibson that met equally horrific fates did not seem to rouse the same recognition. Their stories are equally as tragic, and without knowing this history, we would not be able to consider Gibson a possible serial killer. Here are their stories. In late April of 1906, William Clinchy had hired Gibson to set up his life insurance policy. The beneficiary was listed as Alice Kinnon. A few days after taking out this policy, William Clinchy became the victim of an unsolved murder. On June 6th of 1906, Alice Kinnon was found lying on the porch of her home. Her skull had been smashed in. It was reported that hours before Alice's death, she had been heard saying, that devil of a lawyer put me to a lot of trouble. Gibson was arrested on suspicion of murder. However, he was able to argue his arrest was an unlawful detention and was released on habeas corpus the next day and the investigation into murder of Alice Kinnon came to a halt, and her murder remains unsolved. In 1910, George Malcolm had filed a suit against Gibson to retrieve property of Miss Denton, his aunt. He was the administrator of her estate, and he believed Gibson obtained Miss Denton's property through fraud. Shortly after filing this suit, Michael would go missing, and within days his body would be found in the Long Island Sound. In 1907, Michael and Marie Shippo lived on the Stinton property. Michael Shippo was the caretaker of the estate. On one awful day, Michael was brutally attacked by an unknown assailant and came within inches of losing his life. The Shippo couple lived in fear from that day forward, and in 1909, in the shallow waters of Pelham Creek, Michael Shippo's body was discovered. It was ruled a drowning, however... The actual cause and circumstances surrounding his death are unknown. In 1911, John Rice O'Neill hired Gibson in a settlement suit against the railway. O'Neill was awarded $10,000 for damages and entrusted Gibson to invest this money. On what probably seemed like an ordinary day, O'Neill set out to see his lawyer, Gibson, for their scheduled meeting, which, according to Gibson, 
was a typical meeting discussing money. Where O'Neill headed after that, he didn't know. In fact, no one knows, because after that meeting, O'Neill was never seen again. Edward Minnix was yet another unfortunate client of Gibson's. He had hired Gibson to represent him in a lawsuit that ultimately awarded him $5,500. But just as some before him, Edward went missing before his money had even arrived. Mary Walker would also become another of Gibson's missing clients. She made the unfortunate choice of consulting Gibson with hopes of gaining control of her son's estate. Soon after, she too disappeared. Was Burton W. Gibson a serial killer? We may never know for sure. Throughout the years, Gibson was questioned and even arrested for his possible involvement in these murders and disappearances. However, Gibson would never serve a day in prison for these crimes. His only conviction would be for the first-degree grand larceny, and after release from prison, Gibson, the sly man that he was, vanished, leaving everything behind including his wife and daughter, and was never seen again. Okay, Lakers, it's time to dock. Next week, join me on another creepy adventure on a murderous lake. But until we board again, stay safe and be kind to one another.